text today, we encounter the Sadducees and their encounter with Jesus. Jesus is challenged by them concerning the resurrection of the dead. And my hope is that as we look at this text, our hearts will be filled with joy as we consider the resurrection that is to come in the future and our hope in Christ in the future. And so if you would stand, let me read, beginning with verse 27 from Luke chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We long for it to be planted more deeply into our hearts. We want to embrace it. We want to live in response to the truth of your word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So please plant it deeply into our hearts today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. What we see in the text, the Sadducees come to Jesus. The Sadducees were a religious party, conservative party, very cooperative with the Romans. Josephus, who was a first century historian, wrote this. The Sadducees rejected oral tradition, which is how much of history was passed along by the Jewish community. And they accepted only the written scriptures, primarily... The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They denied the doctrine of the resurrection or afterlife. They didn't believe that there was anything else to come. Their belief was when the body died, the soul died. So not very hopeful. Not a very hopeful religious group. We see in the Gospels, the Sadducees are mentioned working together with the Pharisees to put an end to Jesus, who was their common enemy. But they don't agree, just because we see them working together. They're not the same. They don't agree with each other. We see that most clearly in Acts 23. You remember when Paul stands up and says, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both against Paul at this point, wanting to bring an end to him. But as soon as he says that, the Pharisees are like, yeah, we agree with him. Like, we love the resurrection and you don't. So their enemies really were with the Sadducees. These are not two parties that are in uh, unity in any way, except that they both dislike Jesus. It's probable that the Sadducees had heard about Jesus silencing the Pharisees in these previous texts as they come and try to trick Jesus. It's probable that they've heard about that and they're thinking, well, we can do better than the Pharisees. And so the Sadducees come and they come up with this trick to get Jesus to at least be stuck in confessing that there really is no resurrection or afterlife. They don't believe in the resurrection. And so they, they think they have the perfect scenario to bring to Jesus from the Scriptures. They asked him, verse 28, a question. Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife and no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're referring to what's known as the Leveret Law in the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. In that, the law provided that a man's name would not die out. So if a man marries a woman and he dies without children, then the brother of that man would take the widow as a wife and the first son born to that widow would not be this man's son. He would be his brother who died. It would be his son. He would carry on his name. Deuteronomy 25 says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So they bring this from the law to Jesus saying, look, look at this scenario here. They're arguing that since the law provides for this very thing, then by implication, the law rejects the doctrine of resurrection. Because how could this be? Certainly, this woman cannot have seven husbands in heaven. So there must not be an afterlife. If you are a group or a person who does not believe in the resurrection, who does not believe in the afterlife, this really is a good argument. They're going to the law and bringing it to Jesus. And so they concoct this elaborate situation. There's no need for seven husbands, right? They could make the point with two husbands, but they don't. They say there's one woman, she gets married, and there's seven brothers involved here. And so again and again and again, the husband dies, new husband. Husband dies, new husband. Husband dies, new husband. They're trying to make this story more interesting. Whose wife will this woman be? I'm certain that the crowd surrounding Jesus is leaning in at this point. This is a a good question. What would happen in a situation like that, Jesus? In verse 34, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So first, Jesus points to conditions of this age and compares them with what's to come in the age to come. 
the sons of this age, when he says the sons of this age, he's referring to all who live on the earth. In this age, in the present time, people marry and are given in marriage. Yesterday, we celebrated the marriage of Andrew and Mallory, who are here this morning. You can congratulate them if you would like. It's a joyful occasion. This afternoon, we have another wedding taking place. Marriage is a joyful thing. No one came in yesterday to the wedding with their head down. People get excited about wedding ceremonies. They are joyful occasions. Marriage is a joyful thing. And in this age, Jesus says, that's what people do. But those conditions, those conditions of this age are in contrast to the conditions of the next, of the resurrection. And so at this point, Jesus begins to point to some truths concerning the resurrection. And this is really what I'm hoping to focus our hearts on this morning. The hope of the resurrection, the incomprehensible hope of the resurrection, that what is to come is far better than what is now. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus begins this response by saying, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So immediately he's saying to the Sadducees, You don't really know the word, and therefore you're wrong. And our hope is that we would learn from the Scriptures and grow from the Scriptures that we might have a joy about the things that are coming. The sons of this age, Jesus says, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. The life to come, Jesus is saying, life with me, Jesus is saying, it's going to be different than life now. And for those who are considered worthy, it will be far, far greater than anything that we can imagine. The incomparable hope of resurrection ought to fill us with joy and ought to fill us with determination to bring glory to the God who would invite us To be with Him forever. To think that God, the Creator of everything, who knows our hearts, would invite us into a relationship and say, this, by the way, will go on forever and ever and ever. That ought to bring to us a joy and a determination to bring Him glory. And it ought to lead us to live a life of faithful devotion to win the prize of the upward calling of God. But... Sadly, many people in the church cannot even imagine that the things that Jesus says in this verse could possibly be true or could possibly be good. When Jesus says, for those who are considered worthy, it's a reminder to us that we are counted righteous. We are credited with worth. We are not in ourselves 
worthy. We are regarded as worthy. We do not earn our place there. We've been regarded as worthy on account of Christ's earning it for us. The work that Christ accomplished on the cross through the grave is what counts us as worthy as we submit and surrender to His work, not our own. For those who are considered worthy, when we consider the joy and hope of resurrection, all of the glory belongs to Christ who earns it for those who are considered worthy. So I want to consider the great and incomparable hope of resurrection that Jesus points to here. Three things that he says that I think from the text we ought to set our hope and our hearts on and ought to bring us great joy. And what is the first great and incomparable hope of resurrection that Jesus presents? The first hope of resurrection is no marriage. Now, why in the world is that hopeful? And why is that good? For some of you, this doesn't sound good at all. In fact, many Christians don't want this. Either you think, I love my wife, or I love my husband so much that it wouldn't be heaven for me if, if I wasn't still married then. Or maybe you think, I've never experienced the joy of marriage, so certainly heaven will be, I get a taste of it there. Jesus says that in heaven, we're no longer given in marriage. Why is that hopeful? Why is that good news? We need to see that it is a hopeful thing, incomparably hopeful, I would say. And it's not because of the challenges of marriage. It's not because marriage is hard. Every, everything in this world, everything on this earth is broken and sinful, So that's not why there won't be marriage in the new earth. If there were going to be marriage, it would be perfect, unbroken, and sinless. The reason that Jesus gives for this is also attached to the second incomparable hope. First incomparable hope of heaven is there's no marriage. Second is what he says in verse 36. For they cannot die anymore. So first, let's deal with how they cannot die anymore relates to the hope of there's no marriage in heaven. It's ironic or sovereign that this is the text we get to look at the weekend that we have two weddings in our sanctuary. I love the Lord for that because it helps us to put our focus and our emphasis on what is true and right, and what is best. What does Jesus saying, for they don't die anymore, they cannot die anymore, have to do with hope and not having marriage in the new earth? Jesus is showing here that one of the purposes of marriage here on earth, not the primary purpose, but one of the purposes of marriage is to preserve the human race. It's to procreate. A man and a woman come together, they are married, and they have children. But that's not needed in the resurrection, for they won't die anymore. 
We won't die anymore, and therefore there's no need for marriage to prolong the human existence. That's one of the purposes for marriage. A man and a woman marry and have children, and life continues, and God is glorified. But in heaven, that won't be necessary. In the new earth, that won't be necessary. I think it's important to mention again the primary reason for marriage and also why that connects with there won't be marriage in the new earth. The primary purpose of marriage is to display the unbreakable covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery, marriage, is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Again, this Christ-exalting image that is displayed through marriage, the husband being the display of Christ, the wife being the display of Jesus' bride, the church, will not be needed in the afterlife, will not be needed in the resurrection. Why? Because the one true marriage that our marriages are intended to display will be finally realized. Christ will have his bride. That will be the marriage in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb will have taken place and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. And marriage here is an arrow pointing to that. Marriage here is intended to say, look how much better that is. Look how much better the relationship between Christ and his bride and the unbreakable covenant between Jesus and his bride is. And that will be finally and fully realized in the new earth. And that is bringing us to the other point of this incomparable hope of resurrection. When Jesus says they cannot die anymore, think about the implications of that statement. That means that all of the things that lead to death, all of the things that cause Death will be no more. No more murder. No more disease. No more growing old and dying of age. No more war. And most importantly, going back to the garden, no more sin. All of these things, Jesus is saying in this one statement, they won't die anymore. All of these things, Jesus is saying, will be gone. They will pass away. There will be no more death. There will be no more causes of death. What does that do for our souls? We don't want to be like Sadducees here. We don't want to be denying the truth of the hope of what's to come like Sadducees here. We have nothing. We have nothing to compare to that truth. So we ought to let the truth of resurrection and what is to come awaken joy in our hearts. Heaven is going to be far greater than anything we could possibly imagine. The true, true marriage will be fully realized and we will never die. In that, Jesus says, we are equal to angels. 
They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. They don't marry. They don't die. They're not broken. They're not sinful. They live forever. And then comes the third incomparable hope of resurrection. First is there's no marriage in heaven other than Jesus and His bride. Second, they they don't die anymore. And third is they are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Again, verse 36. Because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, in a sense... We are already sons of God. We are born again. We are adopted by the Father. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. So in a sense, we are adopted now. But our sonship will be consummated at the resurrection. We still dwell in the country from which we were adopted. So it would be as if you were adopting a child from some distant land. As you begin the process of that adoption, there is a season where you are living at home and that child is living still in the country from which you are adopting him. And there's hope in that time. Hope where you're going to be together. And in a day where it is realized, where you go and you get that child and you bring him to your home. That's what we see here. Yes, we are adopted by God, but that is not fully realized yet. There's a day coming where that will be consummated and we will be with him in person forever and ever and ever. Fullness of adoption realized. John writes in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we see Him as He is. That's hope. Hope of a day coming where true marriage will take place between Christ and us, His bride, where we will die no more. And where we will be his sons forever and ever and ever. At this point, Jesus shows the Sadducees where they are wrong in interpreting the scriptures. Verses 37 and 38, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He, now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Jesus so, shows that the resurrection was in fact revealed in the Old Testament. Now he could have gone and pointed to uh, a number of texts for that. Some of the clearest being Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, or Daniel 12, verse 2. We're not going to go there now. You can write those down and look later. But remember, the Sadducees looked to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that's what they considered their scriptures. So Jesus goes there. And in doing so, he appeals to the passage of of most importance to them, where God reveals His name to Moses. 
Notice what Jesus says in the passage about the bush. There weren't chapters. There weren't verses then. This is how Jesus is referring to what we know as Exodus 3, 1 through 6. And Jesus says in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, each of these patriarchs, each of these men that Pharisees, Sadducees, all Jewish people looked to as their patriarchs, each of these named were dead for a while when God spoke this to Moses. And so Jesus' statement that God is not God of the dead but of the living can only be true if they are alive beyond the grave. Our hope as those who look forward to the resurrection is that our bodies are not going to collapse and die and then it's over. But that we will be gloriously raised. For Jesus says, He is not God of the dead, but the living. For all live to Him. We grieve when loved ones die. And that is right because we will miss them. But we don't grieve as those who don't have hope. To God, they are alive. Death cannot break their relationship with God. Death cannot steal from them any longer. Christ conquered the grave and God's covenant with his children will not be broken by death for all live to him. It's the hope of 1 Corinthians 15. You could read the whole chapter and and see the hope of that. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses later in 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a cry of hope from Paul. We look forward. We long for the time when we are with our Lord. We don't look at it regretting what might not be there. We look with hope. As Jesus concludes, it says in verse 39 and 40, some of the scribes answer, Teacher, You have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. They were silenced. The truth of resurrection silenced Christ's enemies, but it should not silence us. We have a hope. We have a hope that surpasses all joys and all hope. Consider the fact that there will be no marriage in heaven for just a moment. What does that mean for us today? How do we consider that truth and apply that truth today? 
One of the implications of that is that all relationships will be better than marriage in the new heaven and new earth. All relationships will be better than marriage. We won't sin against each other. There won't be jealousy. There won't be pride. There won't be slander or gossip. There won't be lying. There won't be fear of man. There won't be spite. Relationships will be unbroken. In fact, we will finally love our neighbor as ourselves, perfectly and always. You will love those around you better than you love your spouse now. And they will love you back perfectly. And so today we ought to take seriously the one another's in Scripture. Just as Wade was talking earlier, we are the family of God forever. We ought to start acting like we're going to be together forever and that we are in Christ forever family. We ought to strive to that end. Together, we ought to be speaking the truth in love, as Paul says. We ought to be growing up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. I would ask you, are we striving for that together? Knowing what is to come, even though our minds can't comprehend the greatness of it, knowing what is revealed to us in Scripture, are we pursuing that together now? Are we truly seeking to love each other with brotherly, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered love? Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The people who are in this room around you who are saved and those who will be saved, they will be with you forever. They are truly forever brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nothing that we can think of that comprehends to that. Is that how how the incomparable hope of resurrection encourages you? After Paul writes that incredible defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the part that I just read, immediately after that, he ends by writing this. Therefore, because that's true, because this is coming, we're going to be raised. We're going to be with the Lord together forever. Since that's true, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's what we tend to do because we don't have eternity in mind. We tend to elevate our families as far, far, far greater than anything else. And so we come to church and then we go away as our little family, and we think nothing of the body of Christ outside of Sunday mornings. But that's not gospel-empowered. That's not what the gospel leads us to do. The gospel reminds us, no, 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 no. This family doesn't break down. It stays forever. We're brothers and sisters forever. Are we thinking that way? Paul's saying, do something. If these, if these truths of the resurrection are true, then do something. Act like, live like the resurrection is true and that this 
incomprehensible and hopeful truth is your future with one another. I want to caution you in closing. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you're not surrendered to Him, this will not be joy for you. John 3, 16 through 18, Jesus says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's not been considered worthy to attain to the resurrection. Jesus says in the text today, this resurrection is for those who are considered worthy based on the work of Christ and their hope and reliance on Him. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know Him, then while we sing, go to the prayer room. Joey and Terrence will be there. And surrender, surrender your life to Jesus. There is a hope coming for those who are in Christ that far exceeds any hope that we could have on this earth. As we, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that resurrection is coming. We are counted worthy because of the work of Christ, because his body was broken and because his blood was shed. And that's what Jesus says to remember in taking the bread and the cup. And not just that, not only are we remembering, not only are we thinking about the fact that we're counted worthy because of Jesus, but we're proclaiming that we believe He's coming again. We believe in a resurrection. We believe in what is ahead for us. Because Paul says, as often as you take the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim His death until He comes. So we're looking backward and we're looking forward. We're looking backward with thankfulness that we get to go forward in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that resurrection is coming. And so let's prepare our hearts to worship Him and rejoice in Him as we partake together. Father, we praise You and we thank You for hope. Lord, this room is full of people who experience brokenness every single day of their lives. We all do. This world is broken. We are broken. We are sinful. We are prone to wander. But you, God, are a covenant-keeping God. You are faithful and true. And you have promised, you have made a covenant with those of us who are in Christ. You've promised to us that there is a hope in our future. There's a day coming that is far better than anything we could comprehend. And yet, even in our brokenness, Lord, we live as if that's not true. We live as if you don't keep your promises. And so even right now, as we're praying, Lord, help us, help us to find and have and hold on to the joy of knowing that you are a covenant keeper. And what is ahead for us is great joy. That we will be with Christ 
our true portion, our hope, our life, our Savior. And Father, I ask you that the hope of that truth would lead us in joy to lives of thankfulness, that we would spend our lives seeking your glory together as your body, that we would seek ways outside of this short time we have together to build each other up in love, to point each other to the truth of Christ. That we would be preparing ourselves, even as your Spirit does, for life together forever. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.